BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, and I'm here today talking with developmental pediatrician, Dr. Billy Garvey, who's just awesome. He's a specialist at the biggest tertiary pediatric hospital and children's research institute in Australia. And he's also really relatable and fun and a young dad himself. And he has a podcast that is called Pop Culture Psychology, which you know is very fun for me. I thought he would be such a fun guest to have for Mental Health Month. He's one of Australia's top pediatricians, and I'm bringing him to you. If you enjoy this episode, don't hesitate to subscribe, rate, and write a little review. And also, don't forget this month's new Raising Good Humans premium podcast on Apple Podcasts. It's all about sleep. So if you're having trouble getting your baby to sleep, getting your toddler out of your bed, or getting your tween to go to bed, this is going to be a really good one for you. I'm here to help. So I'm providing the science, the guidance, and I'm giving you lots of options because there is never one right approach. I want to show people examples of some of the movies that we all know. It would be fun to just help put in context like how much we actually know about what serves children and mm. what doesn't and what helps us as parents through the lens of these kind of fun pop culture movies and characters that we're so familiar with. I mean, you're in Australia and I'm in the United States and I'm certain that we're talking about the same ones. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, what we know is that the biggest influence on how we parent kids is how we were parented ourselves. So that's a, you know, we kind of find ourselves and I've got a two-year-old daughter and I can, you know, I can sense that happening. And I don't know what you and your listeners are like, but where you'd say something or do something, you're like, gosh, that's my mom, you know, that's coming out. But another really big influence is the cultural kind of references and influences that you grew up with. And so we know that, you know, the kind of especially in the 80s, that kind of, you know, tough guy who was like never showed feelings and he just, you know, if he had a kid, he came home and scruffed their hair up and, you know, that was about it. That's really changing now. So there's this kind of beautiful conversations that I find myself having in a pub or a bar over a beer with mates and we're not talking about sporting teams as much as we're talking about how our kids are going and the effort that we're making in that. So it's this beautiful change that's happened and what, pop culture references give me the ability to do is to talk about, you know, some of the exemplar or really good practice that existed back then. One really good example is, well, two really good examples. One of them is probably I often get asked like what's the best 
example of parenting that you've seen in any of these movies. And I don't know how much you can remember Aliens, but Sigourney Weaver, Uh yeah, she's phenomenal. And she's actually not a parent in it, but she goes, they go into this like planet and the aliens have decimated the entire population except for this little girl, Newt. And Newt is, you know, six, seven years of age. They have to go and grab her and get her out of where she's been hiding from this, you know, horrific trauma that she's experienced. And the kind of, you know, mercenaries are grilling her and going, what happened and all this stuff. And Sigourney Weaver's character, Ripley, comes in and moves them out of the way. And there's this beautiful demonstration of mental health first aid in that moment where she gets down and actually gets to her level and just starts cleaning her. Before she even says anything, she's providing this environment of comfort and care and safety. And then she just kind of really gently soothes her in the way that she talks to her and tells her she's safe, open-ended questions, you know, all the stuff that we know is really important. And it's this phenomenal example of like, you know, this moment in a movie that's sci-fi and it's horror and it's all this stuff, but there's this beautiful pocket of mental health first aid. So that's one example I love. Another example I really love, which we used early on in the podcast, was Terminator 2 because there's this amazing moment where John Connor has to explain what emotions are to Arnie's character, the Terminator. It's beautiful because I think one of the risks that we make, especially from that kind of stiff upper lip, you know, masculine 80s caricature that we have, is that we should suppress emotions or we shouldn't show them or there's a weakness in being vulnerable like that. And I think particularly for boys growing up, we've got to change that narrative and say, there's never a bad emotion, you know, getting anger, you know, angry, jealous, you know, regretful. Those are all important, rich parts of life. And the risk that we have of saying to kids, you can't get angry, is that they don't have avenues and they don't skill up in regulating those emotions. So it's this beautiful opportunity to shift the narrative a bit and then, you know, have a bit of fun with it. But I mean, I'm sure you don't want to hear me talk for hours about it, but it's, you know, we've... I totally do. Yeah. I think we've used 33 movies now and I'm always, you know, I'm always really proud. And another one, you know, they just come to my head from, we've recorded this one, I think over a year ago, but we ask listeners to send in questions and we had someone send in to us, you know, what, how do I parent without shame? And we had to go back. It was a dad and say, what do you mean? And he said, well, I just find myself shaming my kids and I'm coming down on them and trying to make, you know, I'm challenging who they are when I call out their behavior and I regret it when I do it. Um, That was, by the way, incredibly self-aware, just that he could distinguish shame from giving feedback. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, and what a great way to seek it out to kind of say, I want to do better, which is, as you know, the best bit of parenting evidence is not this is the way to parent. It's reflective practice. Reflective. Yeah. yeah, How how am I going? If you're lucky enough to have a partner, you know, it is kind of in those moments of calm if you get any and you're having a glass of wine and going, how are we going with this? And I've never met a parent, including me, that's like, I'm nailing everything. You know, it's, <laughs> things things are perfect. So that's where you get the exciting bit where you get to pick and say, well, what's important to us as a family? You know, then you pick a couple of things and you find the path towards them. You know, the important bit about behavior is that we don't say we want to stop you doing that. It's we all work together to be doing things that are healthy for us to do in terms of how we treat other people, how we feel about ourselves, how we regulate our emotions. And 
that's a much easier path. Like I always think we expect so much of little kids when we tell them stop doing that and they're kind of stuck. You know, if I say, you know, don't itch your nose, it's all you can think about. Yeah. Whereas, you know, if you give them pathways to behaviors that are healthy, but they've got to be within their expectations, you can't say, I don't want you to ever, you know, have a tantrum or I don't want you to get upset or I don't want you to snatch from other kids. If you're talking to a toddler, you've got to understand that those are behaviors that are normal and their opportunities early on to build their capacity. Yeah. And anyway, the shame one was we used Remember the Titans because it's this great example of Denzel Washington's character coming down really hard on Petey, this one character who's a really high performer, but he shames him. He's using shame. And we see the other coach comes in and says, you know, I'm unconditionally on your side, regardless of whether you play, regardless of how well you perform. And that's what our kids need to hear is that even if, you know, I got kicked out of high school, I was you know, brought up by a single mum and two brothers and pretty rough part of Australia. And I got kicked out of high school, but my mum was unconditionally there for me. She, you know, it didn't change how she felt about me or challenge our relationship. And it's a really protective thing that you have to really show kids that. They don't, just because we know it as a parent doesn't mean yeah. the kid knows it. Sorry, that's a lot of information and my thoughts about this stuff. As you can tell, I can once I get going. No, I think it's actually quite hopeful because it's an example of regardless of the environmental factors that might interrupt or disrupt your experience, the power of that conditional love from your mother, here you are changing children's lives. Yeah, yeah. I think it was a lot of luck in it for me, you know. I think as you would know, Eliza, there's a lot of kids that, you know, grow up with kind of multi-generational vulnerability and disadvantage. Yeah. And those are the kids I love seeing in clinic because there's so much hope for them, especially I, I don't know about you and I don't expect you to share your personal stuff, but I reckon I spend so much time in my clinic looking for me as a kid, you know, and it's one of the real powerful things for me is like how can I catch those kids and change their path in a small way and it's actually, as we were saying before we started recording, it's not its not really me that does anything. It's me building capacity in their parents, their teachers, their aunts, their uncles, their footy coaches, you know, the drama teacher. Those are the people that enrich these kids' lives. And I think so many people care so much about kids. They just feel lost as to how to do it. And it's a pretty noisy world now. You go back to yes. the 80s and I don't think many people were thinking about parenting and now we're flooded with, you know, social media saying I get up every morning and do yoga with my toddler and you know you're watching yeah. that and you know you feel like your hair's on fire and you're drowning yeah. <laughs> and you think I must be bad at this yeah. you know if I'm not doing yoga with my toddler every morning and now a quick break so I can tell you about my sponsors this episode is sponsored by BetterHelp obviously as a developmental psychologist and person committed to the field of mental health, you know how I feel about making sure everyone gets as best support as they can. As parents, it's so easy to get caught up in what everyone else needs from you and not prioritizing time to think about what you need for yourself. Therapy can give you the tools to find more balance in your life so that you can keep supporting others and you don't need to leave yourself behind. If you're thinking of starting therapy, try BetterHelp. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And if you need to switch therapists at any time, there's no additional charge. 
it's so hard to get support these days when it comes to getting a licensed therapist. It's difficult to find availability, convenience, and a good fit. BetterHelp makes that easier for you. Find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash humans today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash humans. Betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash humans. If you are interested in your health and well-being, you've probably heard about our gut microbiome and how important it is to support a resilient immune system. The gut and the immune system work together to carefully coordinate our body's response to the world around and within us, an intrinsic connection known as the gut-immune axis. Our resident gut microbiomes directly impact the development and function of the immune system, Even before we're born, microbiomes help set the foundation of our immune system, teaching our body how to distinguish between benign substances and pathogenic antigens that are substances our bodies just do not recognize as its own. And throughout life, this relationship continues to develop as the gut microbiome regulates and fine-tunes the immune system in its response pathways. So if you want to support your gut immune access, prioritize sleep, manage stress, and increase your daily fiber intake. Seeds DS01 Daily Symbiotic is a plant-based prebiotic and probiotic with 24 strains that have been clinically or scientifically studied for its benefits. You take two capsules once a day on an empty stomach, could be first thing in the morning, 30 minutes before breakfast, or two hours after your last meal. Get the real deal by visiting seed.com slash raising and use the code raising to redeem 25% off your first month of seeds DS-01 daily symbiotic. That's seed.com slash raising and use the code raising. Gut health is on its way. I think it's interesting that and worth really talking through. There is this point at which we do need to provide professional support for kids and families, but, or, and there's a real shortage. And like you said, you have a two year, up to two year wait list in Australia. And we have at Sinai six months to a year, getting in early is so much more effective, but there's so much that parents can do without having to feel like, wait, I just need to wait for a diagnosis, or I just need to wait for an evaluation. So let's talk through those families that feel unseen or like they can't figure out what's going on and they don't have access to support yet. What are some of the things that we know that make up all those moments that are so powerful that have nothing to do with when they're in your office? Yeah, definitely. So I, yes, that's a great question. And I think a really useful one to people that are listening, because you're right, a lot of families will need to come and see us. We have similar rates to you in the States. We, you know, we know that about one in seven children in a 12 month period will have a mental illness and that's from four to 17 years of age. So a lot of young kids, you know, it must be really hard to have a four or five year old who's really anxious But there is a lot you can do, you know, while you're waiting. And I think one of the biggest things that I think about is, especially kids where behavior is the problem, I think the narrative is really powerful. Like kids become who they hear they are. And I I think that's a really important thing to be really purposeful and specific about for kids. So saying, 
you know, the difference between a behavior and who you are. And, you know, as we were talking about guiding kids and saying, you know, I, I know you're capable of this. When we fail, it's not the child failing, it's all of us, you know, not achieving what we want to. And that's a, a really important part for families. I think sometimes kids can get isolated out and whether it's a classroom or, you know, the football team or a family, you know, oh, Billy is really misbehaving now. Billy's really bad at dinner time. You know, Billy's really struggling to attend school. In, instead thinking about, you know, we've, we just haven't found it yet, how it's going to work well, but we're going to keep trying until we do. I think that's a really important bit. Another powerful part, I think, is one thing we talk about in clinic and a lot of the advocacy work I do is really just about creating sanctuaries for kids. And, you know, those sanctuaries are things that we do, you know this as well, Isa, that just unconditionally happen, you know, and what it has to be is it's about a celebration of the relationship that we have with our kids. And for a parent, that can be, you know, this one thing that we do that we both enjoy, you know, Every Tuesday night we have tacos and it's this really fun thing. And we don't talk about homework. We don't talk about how you're treating your brother. We don't talk about, you know, cutting down your swearing. We just enjoy each other's company. And it's the same for schools. You know, they, I've met some, I've done a lot of work with teachers and they're phenomenal. And those teachers that just unconditionally are there for kids can really change their trajectory. They go and tap them on the shoulder and say, how are you going? But they, it's a genuine thing. It's they really care about that kid. They want to hear how their weekend was. They know their interests. You know, they can sit there and really engage with them. And it's that is so protective. We know that a lot of kids in communities all around the world are just experiencing so many what we call adverse childhood experiences, household dysfunction, neglect and abuse. But what parents and professionals can do is that is provide that sense of worth for kids. You know, you, we, you have a role in this house, you have a role in this school, it's a really important one. The evidence even shows that if you have two non-parental adults that take a genuine interest in you, that is protective for adversity. And that's something that parents can go and be like, yeah, cool, how... Who are those parents? Who are those other adults, sorry, yes. for my son, you know, and how do I find them and build them into their life so that if they're a teenager and they're struggling and they've, you know, had something awful happen, they don't just have me to come to, you know, they can say, hey, this has happened. Can I have a chat to you about it? It's a really important piece of the puzzle for how do we protect kids for the challenges of life. So we've had, and I know this is, been true in Australia, such an uptick in youth mental health or such an uptick in youth mental health challenges. We just had in the community where I am to death by suicides in a one month period at the same institution. Parents are in a real panic because they hear that mental health is on the decline for young people and they feel so helpless. And, you know, a lot of people are trying to figure out why it's happening. Is it pandemic? Is it social media? Is it that we have more information now? Like what is going on? Can you help parents get to a place of, can you help in five minutes or less parents get to a place of understanding like what our role can be and what are the signs to look for when it gets out of our hands? And then there are the 
families that are experiencing those moments of I'm past worrying and into panic. Like this isn't just typical and this isn't just something that connection is seems to be solving. Yeah. Yeah. And we were seeing increasing rates before the pandemic occurred of presentations to our emergency departments and our clinics and rates in schools of, you know, anxiety and other mental illnesses. And the devastation that, you know, suicide has through a community is catastrophic and it's similar you know to america it's the biggest cause of death from mid-teens to you know mid-adulthood in our communities i think yeah so parents intuition is the most powerful thing that we have in clinic you know they know their kids very well and what we understand is that kids have lots of different ways of showing us that they're struggling but the most powerful one can be a change We know, you know, a child who was previously really interested in certain activities, spent a lot of time with their friends, was really engaged in hobbies or the relationship with a parent who then starts shutting down and internalising is a red flag and thinking about, you know, once you've made, as you talk about the investment in that relationship and trying to connect with kids and you still feel like you're hitting a wall, then that's a good time to seek out help. And often educators are the best people to speak to first because they know the kids as well and they can say, yeah, I've also noticed that, you know, Samantha hasn't been herself lately and put put our heads together and if we need to bring clinicians in, we can. The other thing is, you know, that behaviours are really just flares that kids will send up and whether it's, you know, a child who's really struggling with emotional regulation and lashing out a bit or a teen who's being really antisocial and quite destructive and violent. Those are really flares that kids are sending up to show us that they're struggling and we should see them as that, not as, you know, anything more than communication and opportunities to connect with kids. We know a lot of kids, you know, won't, you know, think about how hard it is for us to go when you're having a tough time to go, you know what it is, it's because I'm anxious about this thing that I've got coming up and my right. sleep's been really bad. And like, you don't. You look around, you're probably much better than me, but I look around to blame external sources. You know, I beat so I'm so much more evolved <laughs> than you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to teach me how, not during the episode, but uh, you have to teach me how. But do you know what I mean? So then to expect a nine-year-old to come up to us and say, yeah, you know what, I'm really depressed, I'm not sleeping well. You know, they don't do that. And a lot of their symptoms will come through in a different way. You know, that all kids who are depressed are not sad. Sometimes they're really irritable. Sometimes they're really, you know, just lack interest in things they used to previously. Sometimes they sleep heaps. Sometimes their appetite changes. That irritability and what we call psychomotor agitation is a really powerful thing to watch and say, hey, you didn't used to struggle with this a couple of months ago. What's going on? Also, a really important thing for people to understand is a lot of kids who have headaches and tummy aches are anxious. It's because they don't have the understanding in their body, just like a lot of adults, to say, you know what, I'm anxious. They just say, I'm really nauseous all the time and I've lost my appetite and I've got this headache and, you know, I'm feeling really lethargic and fatigued. So it's a big part of this is, you know, the work that you do and I'm doing as well is how do we give parents and other people the tools to pick out the signs and go hey like I actually do need a bit of help with this and we run an unsettled babies clinic at the hospital that I work at and you know a lot of parents very early on find things tough because we know that you know 20 30 percent of babies will be really unsettled 
but that's not because those parents aren't as good as the 70% of parents that don't have yes. an unsettled baby, you know, and it's the same. If your child's struggling, it's not because of you. It's because of the sensitivity in your child and their temperament, in the environment, the experience they've had, the way they process things and a huge opportunity to skill up and, you know, one thing we see a lot in our clinics, and I'm sure you're the same, is a lot of really sensitive kids. And sensitive kids can be really hard, especially sensitive toddlers. But there's this really beautiful thing, which once you find what works and you connect with them, is they really flourish. And so I love meeting sensitive kids at the hard bit because I know that I'll get to journey with them and see them come out the other side. And they're often really bright. They're often, you know, really in tune with their own emotions, with other people's. They usually develop really amazing relationship skills, but they're just, they're so prone to being set off by things that, you know, other people might not be, to really struggling with transitions, to being really vulnerable in their self-esteem initially, you know. So, but they're beautiful to work with because, you know, they respond so much to positive feedback and to things that reinforce their strengths. And, you know, it's, yeah. So, so yeah, I guess that's one. The only other thing I would say is that a lot of well-intended parents, and I know you talk about this a lot, the connection trumps everything. What a lot of us try and do is see a kid that's struggling and especially if it's someone we care about, we try and solve it. Yeah. And there's a huge vulnerability in this because, you know, if you think about it, you come home from a hard day at work and you say to someone, this is awful, this thing just happened and they go, I know how to fix it yeah. or, you know, or even worse, dismiss it. Oh, it doesn't even, you didn't care about this a month ago or are you kidding me? Look how good everything else is going for you. It's, it's no different for a kid. What we often just want is to be heard and to have someone listen to us and connect with us. And it's almost the most important thing in parenting, which is beautiful because you don't have to have the answer. Yeah, it's so much easier. (laughs) Yeah, it's so much easier than I know how to fix that thing. Yeah, I do often think we don't know how much easier it can be as parents because we're putting so much that feels like action-oriented and presence and just existing in that moment with your child while they're going through that and surviving their pain is actually much less work. It's just harder emotionally for us. Probably for some people, it's untenable to just sit through an experience that you can't fix, where you can't fix those feelings. I was saying, have you watched Succession? Yes. (laughs) This is there's this moment only because it's you and I'm going to just bring in the pop culture thing, but there's the moment, there's a moment where the, one of the characters, Connor is getting married and he's fixated on this cake. It's the wrong cake. And his siblings understand why he's fixated on the cake because his fiance is confused. Like he just keeps talking about this cake and they were like, Oh, that's the loony cake. That's the cake he ate for a week when dad sent his mom to the loony bin And it was like such an example of this. It's a horrible shared trauma of just all of these kids probably recognize that their experience in being parented was getting cake or the metaphorical cake for fixing whatever hard feelings they were having. And I was thinking, oh, well, we don't look at a character like that as a parent we would be anything like, like Logan Roy was just horrific. And yet- so many of us give a metaphorical cake 
to our kids to just fix those feelings. And if we can have the sense that we can handle their feelings, it opens up opportunities for them to thrive. And it's much less work for us. Yeah, the cake is powerful for two reasons. Yes, one, you know, traumatic experiences, it's really important that we understand that a child decides whether something is challenging or traumatic, not us. You know, I think you can be like, oh, it's just a new school or it's just, you know, it's just a birthday party where you don't know half the people and we just lead them into those spaces, missing all the cues that they're giving us. And I you know, some people will worry and say, oh, if I don't send them into that, then they won't become resilient or something like that, where it's, that's crazy and it's wrong. Like we just do it gently. We don't say we're going to stay here forever. We're never going to leave the house. And the pandemic's really important in this context. But we gently walk with kids and it's a really important part of it. The other thing about the cake is that what a lot of us, when we're struggling, is we want to find the things we can control and go to where we're safe and where it's predictable. Oh, yes. The kid in the classroom who's really defiant and struggling does this by being oppositional and acting out because he might look around and notice that he's not doing as well academically, he can't share as well, he can't participate. But if he acts out and gets sent to the principal's office, he's in control. He's created a predictable outcome. And that's more important than being good to kids, especially kids that have experienced trauma. They need the safe harbors to come back to. And for a lot of these kids, those safe harbors, predictability is the important bit, not being good. Yes. So that's another thing for families that are feeling like they don't have outside support available is leaning into those safe, predictable opportunities that we can have every day with our kids in this incredibly unpredictable mess of a world. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm sure it was similar in the States, but we spent a long time not knowing. There was so much uncertainty just humming through our community. You know, kids looked around and one day they weren't able to go to school and then for a long time they weren't able to leave their house and you know, the risk in those environments is that so many things become unpredictable and, you know, parents can feel really lost in that. But the important bit is what can we do that's predictable? What can, what are the activities that we can do every day? What are the things that we can talk about that we know are going to be certain? And that foundation is really important for kids. And I also like A lot of children are really struggling emotionally and as we've said, you know, emotions are really important but I often find myself talking about, you know, as adults, especially parents around kids, I think that there's three really important bits to those emotional difficulties that kids are having. The first is obviously, which we've talked about, how do you respond to them, you know, making sure we see them as opportunities connect. We try as hard as we can to be non-judgmental. You know, they didn't score the winning goal in basketball. They're really distressed. We don't, you know, make light of it if it's something they're really upset about. If we do find an opportunity to get into kind of solution mode, we try and let the kid lead on that, not say, I know what will happen. You know, let's just go tomorrow and practice shooting hoops or let's quit the basketball team. Think about, you know, the child building their capacity. The second bit is how we talk about emotions outside of those times where it's difficult. And I think the hard bit is that a lot of people will think in the moment is where all the work happens. But especially mm-hmm. a dysregulated kid, there's often it's just about safety. It's not about 
hey, I can see you're really angry. This is, I want you to practice breathing exercises or I want you to think about what your body's doing. And the kid's just like going wild thinking, you're kidding me? Like, um, yeah. you know, my my cognitive capacity is gone and I've got a parent talking in my ear. And, you know, including on the come down, you know, a lot of parents will sit on the edge of the bed and then the kid struggles again the next day or a week later and the parent's hitting the head against the wall going, God, we spoke about this last week and they said it back right. to me and, you know, how come? But that's those are two totally different skills to be having a conversation when you're calm about emotions. But then, you know, when you're struggling to be able to remember a week ago, I, you know, we said that we weren't going to do this anymore. Yeah. It's crazy. And I, I guess the final bit of it is how role modeling. We have the one of our most important roles is role modeling emotions and also when we struggle with them because what that gives us an opportunity to do is role model recovery so kids shouldn't look around and never see have parents that never struggle emotionally because then they have this inner turmoil and vulnerability in their self-esteem that there's something wrong with me because i get angry i've never seen mum or dad get angry and we can then show them how we step that back what we do to protect it for me i run a lot you know i make sure i'm around people i really love being around people and all those things really help me and then kids get to watch and go cool running's not the thing for me but i can see <laughs> how much of an effort dad makes so yeah. i'm going to find that thing for me you know i'm glad you said that because i think we also berate ourselves a lot for having human emotions in front of our kids when in fact we have to have them in front of our kids or exactly as you said then how do they learn that a we make mistakes and b that we are humans and we learn a lot from our emotions. We have them and see, we figure out ways to make a decision. Like I'm feeling my body going in this particular direction. I'm going to go for a run. And then we're going to talk about this after or whatever it is. So yeah. I'm, I think that's not something to take lightly. It's such an important part of this parenting journey. And yet we're berating ourselves for the thing that is actually helping our kids, which is when we have those experiences. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, it's really important, thank God, that we're not perfect parents because, yeah. you know, our kids also need to see us go, you know what, I was wrong. And, yeah. you know, I'm sorry. And, you know, this is, I'm going to work on it and I'm not going to be perfect at it, but this is how I'm working on it, you know. And, yeah, that's so important because I think like we were talking about, a lot of the pop culture references you know, and even just so what social media is doing at the moment is, you know, this picturesque lifestyle of we're nailing it, we're affluent, we go on holidays, you know, we do all this amazing stuff and my kid gets an A, you know, they win, they're the captain of the sporting team. It's great to celebrate those things but we, you know, there's a lot of people that look around and go, there must be something wrong with me because that's not yeah. my family, you know, where that's not true. It was heartbreaking. A mom was really just struggling because she keeps having the same thing. Her kid is just a great kid having just, he just keeps on finding himself in really bad situations and just going in directions that, you know, they're a mess. They're messy. And she was so sad because she's just like, I'm trying everything. And I just feel like such a terrible mother. And to your point earlier, which is different than the perfect parenting of us, like thinking that we're supposed to model it because it's not possible and it's also 
harmful. If anything, I would say it would be harmful if you were perfect. Luckily, nobody is. So (laughs) (laughs) I can say that with confidence. But she was so sad and it was so heartbreaking because she also didn't really take into account that like a lot of the experiences of the moms that she's around, those sister moms, they're not raising a kid like that. Like Hmm. he is a great kid, but he is not easy. And that is not because of her parenting. He's a different flower than his peers. And I was saying like, I have one puppy, not to compare dogs and kids, but I have one dog who's so easy. It's crazy. She's like a Muppet. She's just like the easiest. It has nothing to do with me. Absolutely nothing to do with me. And I was fostering a dog for a few months that was that like I had previously left shoes out and like didn't really pay attention to what was around with this other dog because she just didn't, she just wasn't mischievous. This foster dog that I had was so high energy, like needed to run more during the day, needed to have chew toys that I had not prepared myself for. And so this dog I could turn my back for two seconds and something was destroyed. And I was thinking, as a parent, it's very easy when you have a Beatrice. That's my easy dog. And this other dog, her name was Joni. I'm scared, like as if Joni's listening and she's going to have her feelings hurt. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Joni was so cute and I loved her, but she was so, she was built different. And so it was harder to be her her, I'm going to say parent. And I couldn't handle it very well. And I was just thinking when I was speaking to this other mom, I don't know what it's like to be in those shoes with this kid. That is a totally different experience. And so if you're watching all these blissful moments on social media or with friends who are making it look so easy, first of all, it's all, you know, not all of it. Most of it is very curated. (laughs) And also she has a Joni and Jonies need a lot more. It's just is what it is. Yeah. You probably know maybe because of your reference of the flowers, but Thomas yes. Boyce would say, you know, Joni's an orchid. Joni's an orchid. Um, yeah, yeah. They're and so beautiful. Orchids grow so beautifully. They, they are. That's the beautiful thing about that research is that it it says that 20, 30% of kids really thrives when we understand the trick for parents and clinicians like you and I and anyone who's supporting kids is watching kids or even Joni. I've got a Border Collie, so I love the <laughs> reference. <laughs> and it's funny. The Border Collie is much harder in my daily life than my two-year-old. So she is whatever's above an orchid. That's what my Border Collie <laughs> is, who's actually called Melfi after the Sopranos. Yeah, she's named after the Sopranos Melfi. psychiatrist. and yeah and she still is a therapist the joke was you know she would be a therapist for us and she is because she's this beautiful but being but she's really sensitive and yeah the trick with with kids like that is what's the skill that they're missing that they're you know what's the bit that they're hitting their head against because every kid wants to be included wants to be successful wants to, you know, have positive things said about them, they just get stuck and they get stuck. And we've talked a lot about emotions, but there's heaps of other reasons, you know, there's 
you think about executive function stuff, like there's, regardless of a diagnosis of ADHD, a lot of kids really struggle with their working memory. So when you say like, get ready, for, we're going to be in the car in 15 minutes. And then, you know, for us, that's easy. But for some kids, they go, I can't hold those 10 steps in my head. So yes. they struggle with it. And then there's an a, argument and it, all of a sudden, oh, it's just mornings are really tough in our house and families just accept that face where if we can stop and go, hang on, maybe this shouldn't be this hard, what's the bit he's struggling with? I think he gets lost because I just say, we'll see you in the car in 15 minutes and he misses all the 10 steps for that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to step each of them out with him and we're going to do the 10 together and then sweet, he's cool with that. So I'm going to give him half of them to do on his own. He nails it, sweet, we can stretch him more. He doesn't, I go back in and help. I go to the bit where he's successful and I gradually reduce the intensity and how supportive I am. And I see how he goes and we nail that together. It's a narrative about the family. We're all working together at getting better, at getting ready for school in the morning. Not, Billy, I'm going to punish you if you don't, if you make me say for three, if I have to call out a third time, get to the car with your school bag, I'm going to take the iPad, you're not going to get to see your mates this weekend, whatever. Those yeah. moves don't work. They're awful for parents to do. They often increase behavioral problems in kids, whereas if you can look at them and go, what's the bit we're falling down on about this and how do I support to skill them up? It's this really weird thing that we can see it clearly when we're teaching kids how to ride a bike, but we really struggle when it's about their social and emotional development. We don't just give kids a bike one day and go figure it out. We run alongside them, we give them training wheels, we show them how it works, we pick them up when they fall. And we should do that with every single aspect of a child's development, give them the support at the level they require to succeed and then support them to become more independent in it. Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.